we spent one month together and it was a very happy time. We were under the service in the, at the feet of Kishore Kishori in the temple there in Chicago. And um, I was never any kind of an organizer or manager, so I uh, told the devotees, the way we'll organize this, we just read Prabhupada's books, we'll get inspiration and we'll know what to do. And so that's what we did. We read day and night and in the van on the way there and in the van on the way back and in the elevator going up and, and down and so forth. And then we sold the books all day and I had some insight how to do that. So we were very enthusiastic and um, it was very, very spiritual, extremely spiritual. And at the end of the month, it was time for them to go back. And i never forget it. And I'm in touch with him regularly now, also after all these years, Ganapati Maharaj, who was a brahmachari then, like myself. He came to me and he said, you know, uh, I wasn't a sannyasi at the time, he said, you know, Tripari, we think we were thinking that you need a couple of permanent staff members. <laughs> and then we can invite other devotees to come and spend a month and go back to their temples. And it shouldn't just be you alone. You need some assistance. So it was, it was very touching the way he did it. It was full of love and affection. We had become you know, very close to one another on spiritual terms. We were serving very sincerely and we got many, many realizations and we were exploding with realizations. And, and so I was very taken by that and I, and I thought, well, I have to, I better go with the force of affection and whatever comes I'll have to deal with that, which was the wrath of several three temple presidents who <laughs> wanted their brahmacharis to come back to the temple. But somehow or other, uh, affection won out, and even the temple presidents blessed me in that regard. And then we went to round two, and the next group of brahmacharis came. And it kind of so happened that moral and Vaishasheka was in that group, and... Uh, Keshava Bharati and a few others. As it turned out, it, they kind of said the same thing <laughs> after about a month. And we ended up with about 12 or 13 devotees on our party. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I sent, who was my representative, so to speak, to different temples. The one to Washington and Philadelphia, Denver, I think Kashiram spent spent a lot of time in, in Denver. So I was sending them to different temples to initiate the kind of an, kind of program that we had, had come up with in the local temple. And then I would go and I would visit also. And then in 1970, this all happened in one year, then in 1975, as Prabhupada requested, I again went to Mayapur and Vrindavan, and I brought all the devotees who were on my, in my group with me. And at that time, the GBC called me in to their uh, meeting, and they said um, to me, who is your GBC? And I, know I, hadn't even thought, I hadn't even thought about it. It was like the last thing on my mind. I told this story last night a little bit, but this is the detailed one. And so... Uh, Prabhupada, uh, they said, you have to have a GBC. And I said, well, I said, Karunder was my GBC. The last, you know, I thought about it, but he he left the service of, of Prabhupada. So they were a little embarrassed by that. And, of course, I didn't really want to say that, but that was the fact. So 
So then they said, all right, and they, they dismissed me, and then they went to Prabhupada as they would, and review, and they would go, it used to be a three-day meeting, and then they would go to Prabhupada, and they would say, we passed this resolution, and Prabhupada said, I like that one, I don't like that one, adjust this one, adjust that one, this might be the case. So then they came to me, my name, and they said, uh, Tripurari Das, and Prabhupada said, he kind of sat forward with his big eyes open, he said, what has he done? <laughs> and then uh, someone volunteered, well, Prabhupada, he doesn't have a GBC. And Prabhupada said, he does not need a GBC. <laughs> He's selling my books. And so that doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't uh, have authority and that uh, in ISKCON the principle of the GBC is not important. Uh, in fact, a fellow came to me a couple of years back in Vrindavan who had just come from the GBC meetings in Mayapur. And he, and he, it wasn't on my mind, but he mentioned to me, I've just come from Mayapur from the GBC meetings and all. And I said, oh, I said, well, have they, what have, have they made any, you know, important resolutions? earth-shaking resolutions. And he said, oh, we don't care about that, GBC. That's a, that's. And I said, you see, that's the difference between you and me. I care about the GBC. I know what Prabhupada wanted it to be. And you're a member of ISKCON. You shouldn't think like that, I told him. So I'm not against, and I wasn't at the time, authority, and Prabhupada wasn't teaching us that by what he said about me, that he doesn't need a GBC. But he was really teaching what the GBC should be, in a sense, in, in my humble estimation in an organization of a body of senior men and women that would um, encourage and see to spontaneous uh, devotion, see that it happened, and when it did happen, or to whatever extent it did happen, to point to it and say this is the example of, of what's supposed to be going on. It's supposed to be run by love and, and trust, and, it, and administration is meant to foster spontaneity, individuality in a healthy sense, and, and so forth. Not that it's not to that it will burden that and suppress that, which this is always, of course, the obvious difficult thing to balance within an institution, the balance between organizing such that love and spontaneity will flourish and over-organizing such that it's suppressed, and it's no easy easy thing to do. But Prabhupada had given that instruction the way I understood it at that time, and three of the men on the GBC at the time, they because I wasn't there. They, they came to me afterwards and told me the story and what Prabhupada said, and, and they asked for my forgiveness. I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything. I'm just, I don't, I'd be happy to have a GBC. It's not a problem. So after that, then they passed. One of the resolutions that they did pass was that no one could take sannyas without being recommended by the GBC and waiting for one year on a kind of a probation. Because at that time, this was this was 1975, some men had taken sannyas and they had not lived up to their, their vows and it was an embarrassment to the mission to Prabhupada. And so Prabhupada agreed with that. And then we went uh, from, from Mayapur to Vrindavan as the festival did every year. And in, in Vrindavan, Prabhupada gave me sannyas. What year? 1975, same year without the recommendation of the GBC, without waiting for a year. <laughs> so uh, uh, at that time, then I returned to America, and shortly thereafter, Tamal Krishnamarsh left his service in India to come to America. It's a whole other story. 
Yes, the airport parties were. And Tamal Krishnamarish came to America to preach. He had been Prabhupada's GBC in India. And he wanted a little room to try to to preach. It was it was uh, being a GBC in India was was difficult. So he came and he came to Chicago where I was. He met me there. We talked. He went to Los Angeles. He was trying to find how he you know a, a place for himself, so to speak. And. Um, he met up with Vishnu John Maharaj, and Vishnu John Maharaj had a bus, you know, with Radha Damodar, who's now at Gita Nagari, and he was quite a character, Vishnu John Maharaj, quite, you know, carefree and, and hardly an organizer or manager, but a very inspired person, he inspired many devotees. But Tamal Krishna Maharaj had, the, you know, that organizational mind, and so he wanted to organize the, the enthusiasm, really, of Vishnu John Maharaj, and so he took the one bus that Vishnu John Marsh had and they fixed it up and then he started his preaching program. And again, he started, as I say, he started to organize Vishnu John Maharaj, so to speak. And um, it was effective and they made some new devotees. When Prabhupada came that summer, summer of 1975, to America, came to the San Francisco Rathayatra. And Tamal Krishna Maharaj brought in 12 new bhaktas to meet Srila Prabhupada. And they all had a rose. They came in and offered a rose to Prabhupada. It was Tamal's, you know, had organized that. Prabhupada was pleased, but then Prabhupada said, said to him, what about book distribution? So that time, uh, Tamal Krishna Maharaj was preaching, we know we've done enough book distribution, we need to make devotees. So <laughs> Prabhupada said, very nice, what about book distribution? And so then, you know, he was very much wanted to please Prabhupada, and so he adjusted his thinking and figured, okay, this is I've, I've, got, I've come to America. I left Prabhupada's service in India. I have to. I have to he wants book distribution, so somehow we have to become the best book distributing party. That was his idea, and that was his nature. So he turned his men into book distributors. They used to sell. They used to give out a pack of incense, and then they would get a donation, and then they would give a book, and. And then he was successful, so funds came from that. And then he got another bus, maybe a third bus. And he was collecting uh, devotees also, but mostly from the temples. <laughs> um, with this very romantic you know, idea, join the two sannyasis, travel on the buses, and, uh, and so forth. And we meet you Meet you down the block, right, yeah. It's like that. So, for the whole year of '75, he was remitting money to the book fund, and my party, a few men, was remitting more funds to Prabhupada from book sales than any North American temple, and more than Tamal Krishnamarsh's party also. And that was just very much too much for, for, for the Maharaj. If you know him, <laughs> if you knew him, that's, you know, you can appreciate. So, Ramaswar and I, we were always in touch. He was in L.A. and I was on the road. And so Tamal Krishnamurti was, uh, was kind of hard, kind of unpredictable in, in some respects. And he was competing with every temple. And as I say, 
he was doing better than every temple also with, with his men, but our party, my party, was doing better. So in February, I guess of the following year, uh, February of one of those years, early years, our party it was February, and then we would go to Mayapur mm-hmm. in March. And our party, again, was tops. You know, we had dis- <laughs> distributed the most books and given the most funds to Prabhupada. But you had, like, this group where there was one devotee. Yeah. Affiliated with your party, but in Atlanta, Chicago, right. or Denver. Right. Okay. And so then we'd all get together, and I'd go around and visit them. Then we'd all go to Mayapur. So that year, we had def- beaten Tamal Krishnamaraj every month in every temple. So Tamal was frustrated. And so Ramaswar and I, we fudged the figures for February and let him win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that he... <laughs> So that he could come to Mayapur victorious and say to Prabhupada that he had the leading party. Hmm? <laughs> I never told him. <laughs> no, I never told him. Mm-hmm. And and the reason was because we, 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 we wanted him to be enthusiastic because he was threatening that, oh, if I can't be, you know, the best, then I'm, just, I'm not going to give money to the book fund. I'll just give it to Prabhupada to build Mayapur. And we were you know, addicted to the book fund and so forth. And so then he came back to America and, and for another round, and then he met with me in, in Chicago, and he told me that at that time I had gotten a bus, too. I thought, I'll get a bus, okay, and I'll have a, expand my program a little bit. So he didn't like that very much in, in one sense. And so he told me, he said, that we should join together because I'm competing with all the this is the way he put it. I'm competing with all the Grihasta temple presidents, and I, I don't want to compete with my sannyasi godbrother. If I have to do that, then I'm just going to quit. And I'll just again, he said, you know, I'll just give money to Mayapur and Bombay, and you know, just like Guru Kripa Maharaj and you know, Sodananda Maharaj were doing. They were just collecting and giving money to probably, which was fine. But again, we were very much uh, concerned about the book book distribution, so. So he kind of intimidated me in that way, and uh, and so I thought, hmm, well, uh, better to better to join with him and keep him happy, and and so so we joined together. And then um, he said, okay, and Prabhupada was there at the time. So he said, let's go to see Prabhupada because he wanted to ratify it, and uh, he knew that there would be some fallout on the higher levels of administration which he was connected with. I wasn't really connected with them, so. And we went to Prabhupada, and Prabhupada said, Prabhupada could understand what was going on because he knew both of us. And so he said, okay, that's fine. And then so Tamal Krishna said, so what shall we call the party, Prabhupada? Because my party was called the Bhakti Vedanta uh, Traveling Sankirtan Party, something like that. We had Prabhupada's name on our party. And my Guru Nista, you know, showed up um, for in, in naming our party. And Tamal Krishnamurti's party was named the Radha Damodar party. So Tamal asked Prabhupada, what should we name the party? Should we name it, you know, after you, Bhakti Vedanta, Traveling Sankirtan party, or after Radha Damodar? Of course, Prabhupada said Radha Damodar <laughs> in his humility. So it became the Radha Damodar party, and then, then we, were, we were merged, so to speak. And then some of the devotees from the buses, maybe you were, did you join on a bus? No. Well, some of the devotees at that time who were on. Who? Mahahari. Mahahari, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, Tamal Krishnamarsh had decided to become Prabhupada's secretary, I, I believe. Oh, well, 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 Prabhupada split up the party then. Right, also, sorry. sent Tamal Krishnamarsh to China in 76. That's right. And then I became in charge, as I was telling you earlier, of two buses, 70 brahmacharis, and the St. Louis Temple, which was which was ready for, uh, was, on, was next on the block for demolition. <laughs> and the sit, so the city had bought the place and it was incumbent upon us to find another house. So I found, I, I found another house and, and uh, Tamal Krishnamaraj was, um, well, he was Prabhupada's servant and then Prabhupada left the world and he went to Bombay. And then um, I was saying, and I'll finish that story, I, I went to, I had these 70 brahmacharis and two buses and this little shoebox house, like I was saying. So, excuse me, so sold a lot of the buses at that point in time? Because had about 12 or so. I think there were only six buses. Six. And what happened was two of the buses came to me, the rest of the devotee and the 70 brahmacharis, the rest of the party went to New York and Gita Nagari to help Adi Keshava Maharaj. That's where I was. Right. And so then buses were sold, yeah. And I had the, the two buses. And so I, I then was thinking, oh, we need some place for our brahmacharis to meet up at the St. Louis Temple. It's just not sufficient to meet and have festivals and so forth. So I went to New Vrindavan, and I negotiated with Kirtan Nanamaraj to buy the, what was called the old, I think, Vrindavan farm, oh, the brahmachari farm where Radhanath Maharaj used to stay. Radhanath was a brahmachari there, and a... And a I used to preach to him. I actually, I preached to him. He should take sannyas and and encouraged him along those lines. And he, subsequently, he he did shortly thereafter, a few years later, I believe. So anyway, I, I wanted to buy that, and Kirtanandamaraj was quite willing, and uh, I was going to purchase it for thirty thousand dollars at the time. I don't know what it's worth now, but uh, that was nineteen seventy-eight, actually. And Tamal Krishnamaraj came back from India, from Bombay. And uh, he became the GBC of St. Louis. Some change. Had, those were uh, difficult times. And um, well, he didn't like the idea of owning property in New Vrindavan. And it was Kirtan on the Marge's zone and so forth. Things changed a little bit then, but it was the last time I think I was in New Vrindavan. Maybe I went to New Vrindavan when Prabhupada's uh, palace was open, too. That was probably in the 80s, right? 79. 79, yeah, I must have gone to that. It was the last time I was there. So have you taken prashadam? I think yes. that... <laughs> oh, well, we'll be here a while. Please. Mahaprasad Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> Overall, I would reply to those days and things that took place in those days that we can think about now in retrospect. I think that um, my overall response to all of the, those days is that uh, we were very young and, and we were very sincere. And we were um, we were burdened. Uh, we were fortunate. Come, yeah. we were fortunate to be burdened by a very. Um, oh, 
Careful, careful. We are fortunate to be burdened by a, a very strong desire of Prabhupada to see that his books were sold. And they were, when I joined, they were sitting in the warehouse, to be honest with you, for the most part. And um, somehow we did it, and, and we could have done it a lot better, uh, I think. But then again, we couldn't because we were what we were. And if there was anything about us that was memorable and meaningful and, and valuable and worth talking about, it was our sincerity to somehow realize the ambition of Prabhupada, which was at that time was twofold, was manyfold really. It was not only did it involve disseminating the books, but it involved generating the funds that would allow him to print and publish and manifest for the first time in English the uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita and so forth. It was a very extraordinary time. That was a, to bring that down from above and, and to facilitate that. That was uh, a very, very, very uh, wonderful opportunity, burden that, that came to us. And I, you know, I was very involved in that, and I know other men and women, some of them are here tonight also, that were involved in that. And I can tell you that, that without exception, the devotees that were involved in that, they were giving their all in all. I mean, they were, every ounce of sincerity that was in them was, was applied to, to that service. And they, they sweated and cried blood practically to do that service. And even I just talk about them, I become uh, ecstatic <laughs> to think of them and how they served. It's, and I was, I pushed myself quite a bit and some by circumstance I became an example for them. Not only in terms of that activity of selling the books, but in terms of the kind of spiritual practice that was required to be fit for that kind of service. I became by circumstance kind of a model of sadhana. Hmm? of spiritual practice. So, that, that, was the, that was the real substance of those times. And um, superficially, then there were many things that could be criticized, and I would be the, I'd be first to criticize them or critique them as well. But overall, you have to... You know, Prabhupada also, he, in characteristic of his uh, generosity and Vaishnava nature, more or less turned a blind eye to everything other than other than the um, what he felt was good, that the books were being distributed and that the devotees were making advancement in spiritual life. And he felt that, well, anything, any uh, inconsistencies or shortcomings, uh, at, at downside, but that'll be compensated for. As he used to say, any publicity is good publicity. You see, if you take what Prabhupada was involved in at that time, and we were his accomplices, was kind of a form of spiritual terrorism, if you will. Just like Yasser Arafat, you know, when he began his PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, it was a terrorist organization, and he performed acts of terror with the explicit purpose of getting attention with the idea that any publicity is good publicity. Because our cause will be heard about, and at some point, people will inquire, well, what is the PLO? What, what, why do you guys do this? What, and he had no voice, no, no stage, no platform to speak from. 
So he created the platform by his uh, reign of, you know, by his terrorism. So Prabhupada more or less did the same thing. It was a form of spiritual terrorism. And we terrified people um, in the airports and on the streets <laughs> into buying books. We intimidated them, terror, in, you know, terrorized them. But, you know, they, but they also, we also charmed them to some extent. I remember sitting here with a fellow at the, at the Potomac, uh, what is it called, National Airport? Hmm? I remember sitting down with one fellow. I remember sitting down with one fellow at that airport and early in the morning sat down next to this businessman. At that, that, that time we were, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23. We were talking to people our parents' age often selling them books. Young people too, but this was a, a gentleman, businessman. I sat down next to him and I said something. I, I talked to him. I went into his right ear. This is the right ear, you know, the, the right ear for hearing spiritual topics. The Diksha Mantra initiation goes in the right ear. I gave him a capsule of what the Srimad Bhagavatam was about hmm? in such a concise form with such insight and feeling. I, never, I have never... What you said... What you, I can't repeat it, but what you said went in my, what's gone in my ear. He said, it was like, he said everything, but that was nectar, Maharaj. <laughs> so, so we had that also. We, we had some power hmm, to uh, affect people's hearts by the grace of, by the power of Prabhupada that we were all under the influence of. So it had, um, it had an overall, uh, Good effect, and we pleased we pleased our spiritual master, and so that's what the spiritual life is all about. Otherwise, yeah, there were there were inconsistencies, and there were some some downside. And in the, using the example of spiritual terrorism, that's as I say, what Prabhupada had was a campaign of spiritual terrorism. We were terrorizing people, and I remember that there was a, you know, the Chicago Bulls. It's a basketball team. Okay, well, you know, they would come from out of town, having gonna played a game on the road back to Chicago. And there we would be at that airport. And, and, and every time, every player on the team came through the airport, not one of them got through without being asked to buy a book. So they developed a defense that they called the Hare Krishna defense, based on you know our approach there at the, at the airport. So we were pretty enthusiastic. And we were terrorizing the Chicago Bulls and everybody else to, in, in one sense. And we were bringing recognition to the movement, just like I say, just like the PLO, just like Yasser Arafat. This was Prabhupada's form of spiritual terrorism. And he said, any publicity is good publicity. And even devotees more mature and thoughtful than perhaps than myself in some respects, they would critique the book distribution and see that there was a downside of it. And Prabhupada would always, 100% of the time, he would support me. And you know what he would say? me and, and, and other devotees who were involved in that service, he would say about me, he would say, Tripurari Maharaj is sincere. So, if you can show better, surely he will follow. Yeah. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> Those guys weren't ready to go out there and show better how to, how to sell the books. So, Prabhupada figured, this is what I've got, we'll go with it. And, uh, but now, playing that, that metaphor of spiritual terrorism out, times change. And so now Yasser Arafat has become a diplomat. And the PLO has sympathy everywhere. 
and supporters, and even people in the United States campaign on their behalf and so forth. And so you have to integrate uh, once the revolutionary kind of initial phase is over and you get recognition, then you have to integrate with society. And, and therefore, I think it's wise for the international Gaudiya Vaishnava community with regard to book distribution to find ways and means that make sense to Americans for, in America or anywhere that make sense, that are more conventional. We have to meet them on conventional terms. Sell the books in bookstores or over the internet. Hmm? Pardon me? <laughs> one one well, strange effect of being in the airports is that people thought there were millions of Hare Krishna. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. They're everywhere. Right. I like the books. Oh, yeah, <laughs> But those were very extraordinary, extraordinary times. But times change, and that's the whole idea of preaching. Times change, and so someone who is... Um, spiritually uh, relevant and has spiritual currency, then we'll adjust according to the time and the circumstance. So I'm not at the airport now, but I'm writing books, so that's progressive. <coughs> Prophet wanted that, too. I don't think anybody would that was involved. It's still fun. You see that. Yes? I was going to ask you last night, but I, I don't know. It's not pressure. Is there any particular um, incident, incident that sticks out in mind of when all those years you've done this book distribution? You know, like somebody in exchange you had? Or, I mean, I'm sure there's so many. You did it for years. And so many. Is there any particular one that stands out? Experience on book distribution? Oh, there's so many. So many. So many. So many with regards to the magic of Krishna consciousness in the context of preaching. Preaching is a spontaneous type of affair, and when it's done properly, it's an overflow of spiritual practice, really, and it's very dynamic and it's exciting at every moment what can happen. It's a very wonderful opportunity to see to see Krishna, hmm, so to speak, beyond the beyond the deity and the temple. But probably the most memorable times for me, more than the, the miracles that happened of meeting people and seeing people inimical, turned into devotees, uh, so many instances like that, and uh, those types of experiences which are wonderful. The more memorable to me are the, uh, the times of inner experience, blessings of Prabhupada and Krishna on me when I was able to become completely uh, absorbed such uh, that, um, that I was no longer at the airport. And those moments, uh, times, sometimes in those days for me, there were days and weeks at a time of, uh, you know, Prabhupada used to say, work now and samadhi later. Mm-hmm. So we worked pretty hard, and there was samadhi also. <laughs> so those times were most uh, most memorable.
when it was apparent that the whole material world can just melt away, hmm? can melt away, that it's, uh, it is here today and then gone tomorrow. And those moments, those times, those days, those weeks, those seconds, whatever is afforded you by the grace of Krishna and your spiritual practice, that is ultimate praman, evidence. That is pratyakshabhagamam dharmam susukam kartam avyayam. When you're blessed by those experiences, then that's the most substantial evidence as to the validity of, of what you're involved in. We have intellectual evidence, we have scriptural evidence, and, and often we stress the scriptural evidence, shastra praman, evidence of scripture. But really Chaitanya Charitamrita teaches that the ultimate evidence is experience. And Gita says the same thing. Raso barjam, raso piyasya param dishtva nivartate. When you see with inner vision and you, and you taste, then that is most confirming. And so we should engage ourselves in such a way that this is what it's for. We should know that our sadhana is for a purpose. Sadhana means course of spiritual practice. And the purpose, the ideal, the goal of sadhana is what? Bhava, from sadhana bhakti to bhava bhakti, hmm? serving in Prabhupada's language to serve in practice, from serving in practice to serving in ecstasy, and then cultivating that ecstasy to we enter into prem bhakti. And this is our ideal. So we should have some goal in mind. We should gauge our sadhana in terms of what it's intended to result in. And then when we think, mm, I'm not getting too close, we might think, then we know we have some work to do. Hmm? And uh, and what will help us most in that regard is to have good company, sadhu sangha. This is everything for us, really, the birthplace of real bhakti, bhakti proper, is uh, sadhu sangha. Sadhu sangha means association with saintly persons, satsangha, to associate on the basis of what's real, that kind of gathering. Just like if you're cooking is a gradual thing, so we say Krishna consciousness, it's gradual, but it's true. But if I come in the kitchen and I say, where is the dinner? And you say, it, it's coming gradually, but the stove isn't turned on, then <laughs> you have to cook it at least. <laughs> they put it on the stove. So that fire, that is sadhusanga. So there's little meaning to our sadhana, if it's not intimately involved with sadhu sangha, or if it's not, if we're not troubled by the fact that our sadhana is not blessed or not integrated uh, enough with with real sadhu sangha, and then what to do? People write me that kind of thing all the time. What if you live somewhere and there are no devotees, and what should you do? And I say move. <laughs> you should move. You have to be a little flexible after all <laughs> if you want to become Krishna conscious. In order to become flexible, it's interesting, but in order to become fixed in Krishna consciousness, to become inflexible in our practice, we'll have to become flexible. Therefore, Mahabharata said, turn out a piece of Nichena. When you become flexible like this, it means 
that you should become, Mahabharushi Chaitanya Dev said, more humble than a blade of grass, more tolerant than a tree. Tree stands, tolerating the winter, a cold of the winter, the heat of the summer, will give you warmth in the winter, will give you shade and cool you, your body in the summer. If you chop a tree down, it will give you shade from the sun to do so. No complaints. Tolerant. And blade of grass, humble. If you step on the blade of grass, no resistance. It just bends over. You should give respect to others, Mahaprabhu said, and expect no honor for ourselves. If you have this disposition, this fourfold disposition, then your kirtan, your chanting, sada, it will be fixed. Always. It will be constant. This is what we call nishta. Nishta, the bhajan, the practice, it doesn't waver. That's not that sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Or when we do, we're drifting here, there, and everywhere else. When we're doing mechanically, we're really somewhere else. Not like that. Fixed, paying attention. We need to come to this stage, most of us. That is a kind of inflexibility. Fixed. But in order to get there, we have to become very flexible. We have to be willing to... To bend like this, Mahaprabhu said, like a blade of grass, humble. When we become humble and flexible, we have to be ready to change, to make some change in our life. So I think it's, it's all right to say, then move. Krishna has come to you, you should respond. And you should know, all of us should know, this is about change. It's not about staying as you are and just tacking on some information, hmm? changing your dress, and then just spitting out some dogma to everybody and feeling you know something and that you've gone somewhere. Hmm? Because other people think, wow, that's interesting. No, you have to really go somewhere. It means you have to change. You have to change yourself. It's difficult, but that's the task. Hmm? Not to remain as you are and add some information not to have a religion, not to do worship, but to become that worship. And that is really the idea of fixed. When your bhajan becomes nishta and becomes fixed, then after a long time you get some taste for this, some positive attainment, ruchi. And ruchi develops into an t- attachment for Krishna in a particular way, and then you will glimpse your real identity and enter into bhava-bhakti and cultivate that identity and that bhava is, becomes called stai bhav, principal bhav. means it can never change. Like friend of Krishna, like lover of Krishna, it can never change. That's fixed. But to get there, then we have to become so flexible. We want the one thing. What is that transformation that is Krishna consciousness? Golok is a whole land of ecstasy. Everything is ecstasy. Every movement, Sriyakanta Kanta Parama Purusha Kalpataravo, Druma Bumis Jintamani, Ganamaito Yamamritam, Kataganam Natyam Gamanam, Babibam Si Priyasaki, Chiranandam Jyoti Paramanam. This way, Jibu Goswami said about this verse from Brahma Samhita. This verse says, Oh, the land there is all Jintamani, like a touchstone, the philosopher's stone. If you touch it to iron, it turns iron into gold. Cows uh, give limitless milk or anything else. They fulfill all your desires. The trees are like that, wish fulfilling. The walking is dancing. The talking is singing. Deva Goswami said, 
What must be the singing? What must be the dancing there? Hmm? There we want to go. <laughs> Where is that? It is in the homeland of our heart. How do we go there? For home going? We need a home knowing man. <laughs> or woman. Hmm? That we need. When such person speaks, who knows home, then we say, oh, that hit home. That touched my heart. See? Shravanadi sudhachite kare udai Krishna prem nitya siddha sadhya kabunai Krishna prem that is in your heart in a minute form anandakan like a particle of cannot be accessed by your own effort but by good company we become involved in hearing shravanadi hearing chanting remembering and sudhachite our consciousness becomes purified and kore udai it awakens, that Krishna Prem awakens. It was in the heart. Home-knowing person hits home. He said, that hits home. We say, oh, you see, it touches our heart. And then we have to respond to that because when such person speaks and it touches our heart, we know, yes, that's right. Then what is the change? Then we have to do that. If we listen like that, oh, then very quickly we'll make progress. If we know, that's right. But Mara said, yes, that's right. We have to do that then. We have to take steps to do that, to make that our life. That means to change from our present situation. Then Krishna Prem will come. That, that changing, that's sudhachite, making the consciousness pure. And when our consciousness is pure, then it will awaken naturally. So this is our task. We have to be a little flexible. We have to be prepared to change to move, in order to enter into the changeless plane of Krishna consciousness. It's changeless. It means it never gets boring. It's changeless like that. (laughs) It's changed. It never changes. It's always ever fresh. Always new at every moment. This way it never changes. Hmm? Krishna is exploring his own self. What am I? Why am I? (laughs) What am I for? It's the kind of information we get. Hmm? <laughs> Such things we are told about Krishna that Krishna is embarrassed to hear. Therefore, he gave a slap to Rupa Goswami. When Rupa Goswami understood what he was feeling and thinking in Rathyatra, Mahaprabhu was singing a cinema song in Rathyatra, but he had a, a certain take on it, what it meant to him. Rupa Goswami could understand. He composed a verse explaining the meaning and he, he tacked it on his his door. Mahaprabhu came to see him. He saw that and he, t- he tore that up, gave him a slap. How could you know my mind? This is Rupa Goswami. See, we are indebted to him. What he has done, he has broadcast what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is about. Therefore, Nartam prayed. Shri Chaitanya Mano Vishtam Stapitam Jena Bhutale Svayam Rupakadhamayam Vidati Svapadantikam Oh, Rupa Goswami has understood the heart of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. What is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? What is that ecstasy that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is about? He understood it. And Nautam Thakur prays, When will Rupa Goswami bestow his mercy upon me that I may understand the heart of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. 
when will my guru bestow that kind of mercy upon me? That that will become my treasure, heart's treasure as well. So we came for this, actually. This is Krishna consciousness. This is what we come for. Uh, but sometimes we get a little distracted. So good company, that will bring us back on the track. That good company is like that, that fire that the vegetables cook gradually on. We have to keep that company. In that company, we'll understand. I have to make some changes in my life. Hmm? And a change is insignificant. I used to think, sometimes, you asked about that book distribution, sometimes I was so tired, but we worked very hard. You know, We would get up every morning at 3 o'clock. Hmm? And we would chant all of our japa before Mangalarti, read for one hour, go to Mangalarti, go to the Tulsi Kirtan, go to the greeting of the deities, the Bhagavatam class, take prasad, go out all day long, come back at, at night, take shower, go to Artik, hmm? Bhagavad Gita class, read the Krishna book, take rest. Hmm? Day after day, week after week, year after year after year, and all day long dealing with not only the physical aspect of that, it was very, could be very taxing. Hmm? And we were not always the brightest with regard to standards of health and common sense. <laughs> we worked ourselves very hard, eating very little. We probably should have slept, slept more. But... Um, other than that, just dealing with the minds of the people, and it's like something like, like you're in the middle of a stampede of people on Friday coming home from work, you know, and you have to stop them somehow, and, and not only stop them, but you have to tell them what Krishna is. It's like, inconceivable. You're giving them the Bhagavatam is the very heart of Krishna. You have to convince them to embrace the heart of Krishna. It's very. Uh, Taxing in that way was very absorbing, but sometimes I was, I was very tired. But I would think, if I just move a little bit, make a little movement, it's not so much. A few feet to touch that fellow and stop him, how that will change his life. The little movement that I make, what will that do for that person? How far they will have come just by that touch. My godbrother, Vishnu John Marsh, used to say a nice thing. I always remember it and I'd like to repeat it. He used to say that the distance we have gone before attaining the shelter of our Gurudev is far greater than the distance we have to traverse from this point on. Hmm? Although sometimes it seems we have far to go, the distance we've gone is much greater. So to give people that opportunity, a little movement on my part, I thought, that's worth it. I should push myself and stop him, give him the book. A couple of feet for me, another few minutes. What will it mean for him, for her? So much. And compassion, of course, that is Krishna consciousness. My God, Brother Bhadri Narayan once asked Prabhupada in Calcutta, leaned over the balcony and he saw some beggars there. And uh, they're not so much like the beggars here, you know. Vietnam vet, <coughs> please help. You know, not that the government doesn't help, you know, the Vietnam vets, as if he's really a Vietnam vet. We see them on the street corners sometimes or at the stoplights. But in India, you know, they have missing a limb or 
some other deformity is, is common. Really, the people uh, from normal standards, and certainly Western and American standards, very uh, desperate. So he saw them, beggars, and Prabhupada was there, and he turned to Prabhupada and he said, you know, Prabhupada, sometimes I feel compassion for these people. As if to say, sometimes I'm in Maya, because I know it's just their karma, and I shouldn't be sentimental, <laughs> and all these things. And Prabhupada turned to him and said, why only sometimes? So Krishna consciousness is, is compassion, in a sense. When we have compassion for the plight of the soul, then it extends to be, in, within that context, to their human condition as well. But it's not that we are insensitive to the human suffering in the name of, as I say, well, it's their tough karma, and... Um, and somehow intellectually we arrive at some position that's really artificial for ourselves. It's, it's not a realistic position. We don't understand fully the intricacies of karma we haven't, if we haven't transcended it. Also, within the context of, of love of Krishna, then human love is, is also to be found. Indeed, Krishna consciousness is realizing the fullest of human potential because Sriman Mahaprabhu Chaitanya Dev, he taught that humans are not different from the animals merely because they reason. It said, you know, humans are rational animals, therefore we differ from, from the others. He said the real difference between humanity and the rest of the species is what? That in humanity, we can realize the potential of love. And that goes far beyond reason. And Krishna is God, but coming to human society in human-like form to f experience everything that he can about himself and everything that he can about love. The Nara-lila of Krishna, that is transcendentally superior to the Deva-lila. Deva-lila means Koloka. And Nara-lila means, Nara means human, so humanly. When Krishna comes to the human stage, what does Robert Frost say? Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. Mahaprabhu, Sri Chaitanya agreed. Krishna agreed. Earth's the right place for love. Hmm? I don't know likely where it's likely to, go better. it's likely to go better. You see? This is so <laughs> Krishna consciousness is very much about here and now in human society. It really is. There's a stage, of course, of Krishna consciousness in which we, with, we withdraw from the world. As with the ingress of knowledge, mystic insight, and understanding, knowledge, we withdraw from interacting with temporary things, temporary sense objects, because we're in the pursuit of an enduring experience and a happy one. Do you follow? With knowledge comes detachment. We are moving in relation to temporary things and we're very busy, 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 busy. Trying to, what are we doing? Trying to counteract the apparent norm of this plane of experience which is that nothing can remain. We're threatened 
with non-existence in the plane in which we live. We kill to live. We're, we're struggling to, to live, to survive. This is what we, what we do. Because we have a perception that, oh, the world is saying that we may not at some point, we have to st- so we, we have to struggle. Of course, that's just an angle, angle of vision. This is how we, are in, in, a, in a very basic sense, how we conduct ourselves in human society. So we're on the take, you see. We are not giving. But the full expression of humanity is about giving. The real truth is that the world works by giving. <laughs> That's what really makes the world go round. Giving. Sacrifice. By giving, give and live. Hmm? Mm. It is said that you by give and you shall receive. See? This is the fact. This is what really what makes the world thrive. This is the real force of the world. By giving, we get invisibly, but very tangibly, giving away, apparently, we get. What we give, what we're giving away, is ultimately, is, is, is the idea that we that something belongs to us. It doesn't. We get the understanding for whom it belongs to. We get a relationship with that person, and he's related with everything. At a certain stage, as I say, we may move back from the world. With the ingress of knowledge comes detachment. If I have knowledge in the pursuit of an enduring experience, I'll move back and detach myself from things that don't endure. At that point, we can look objectively at the world, because if we're subjectively involved with something, we can't see it for what it is. So we're subjectively involved with the world, material manifestations, so we can't see it clearly, so we have to step back. So. We have books, and there's theoretical knowledge in those books, and so forth. And, and if we apply those, that theoretical knowledge, there's some viragya, some detachment. We start to get an objective picture of what the world's like. So we move away from it. But that's not the sum and substance of Krishna consciousness, moving away from it. What Krishna consciousness is about is moving back into it, hmm? fully into the world. This is a very... Uh, forgive me, but very esoteric idea, but this is the teaching of the Goswamis and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Krishna consciousness is the fullness of the human experience. Mahaprabhu taught humanity differs from all of the species because in the human species we can realize the potential for love and Krishna himself, therefore, has come to the human society to experience the fullness of love fullness of himself, the fullness of love, he thought, as we've heard Robert Frost uh, agree, the great poet, uh, that is most uh, possible in human society. Love is a fallen condition, so we fall in love. Hmm? Krishna is is God fallen in love, that is Krishna. When God falls in love, that's what we're involved in. <laughs> this is a very esoteric idea. Hmm? Every religious tradition teaches that God is the most worshipable object. What do we teach? What is the most worshipable object of God? This is very esoteric information. Therefore, Mahaprabhu, as I say, he slapped Rupa Goswami. Mahaprabhu blushed when Rupa Goswami wrote that poem saying this is what Mahaprabhu was thinking about when he sings that song in Ratha 
when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, when Krishna hears that, you know that about me? Oh my God. <laughs> See, this is this chanting Hare Krishna is about. When you chant Hare Krishna and you understand the meaning, not theoretically, but when your chanting is pure, then Krishna will say, oh, you, you're saying that about me. He want to, he want to cover your mouth. I'll take you back to God. Hmm? Oh, that's embarrassing to him. You know that about me. Oh, you should be in my inner circle. We should chant like that all the time. Yeah. What did the poem that Goswami wrote say? Oh well, that uh, Mahabhu was singing a song from Kavya Prakash. It's a secular Rashastra book on the rules, if you will, of poetry and drama. Proper dramatic uh, composition, poetic composition. It's a funny way to talk about it, really, because rules of poetry, poetry is the language of love, of course, and love and rules don't go together too well. Although love can arise out of, out of rules, we organize in such a way to foster love Love is natural and spontaneous. It doesn't take much for a young girl to fall in love with a young boy. But she can do things that will perhaps foster it. So we do those things to foster love for Krishna. We may dress in a way that's favorable, we may speak in a way, act, do things, certain things, don't do other things, and so forth. That things that will attract Krishna, get his attention, and promote that. And so, there are some rules, in one sense. Prabhupada, I think you spoke somewhere, maybe in the in edition of the Gita, the rules and regulations of freedom. Just like you have the rules of the road for driving, so you may think, I, I, want to, I just want to drive. Forget the rules. Get on the, but you, then you endanger your potential for driving, really, by doing that. Whereas if you study the rules of the road, you follow them, then you can drive and drive and drive. And so, this was a book, Kavya Prakash is a famous book of secular Ras Shastra, the rules of, for poetry, one, one of them, a famous one. And so, in that book, then you'll have different examples. And a lot of those examples are, are drawn from the Puranas and, and other such books. So this is proper composition, or this illustrates this, or this illustrates that. And here we find this, this Daibhav, Dhanibhav, and all these things. So there was a, there's a famous song in there, <coughs> Ya Kumaraha, it begins like this. And it's uh, Mahaprabhu was singing this song. It speaks of, uh, ostensibly, about a young girl wanting to meet with a, again with a young boy in a rural setting. And so Mahaprabhu was at Ratiyatra. Ratiyatra is, symbolizes the dethroning of Lord Jagannath. <laughs> Jagannath means Lord of the Universe. And uh, Ratayatra is like, uh, means taking ropes, attaching ropes, like you put the ropes on that card, and dragging him down from his throne into the public, amongst the common people, making him accessible to anyone and everyone. It means taking Krishna from Dwarka, where he's known to be God, Sometimes he shows four arms, sometimes he shows two arms. He's known to be God there. Taking him down from there and making him just like a village person, 
completely accessible. That is Vrindavan. So taking Krishna back to Vrindavan. And who is pulling him back? Gopis. All the inhabitants of Vrindavan, but principally the gopis, dragging him back, taking him down from the throne. And when they're taking him back to Vrindavan, they're making him accessible to everyone also. The further we go into the Vrindavan Leela, if we go as deep as we can, what do we find? We find the Gaur Leela there. The deepest point of penetration into Krishna Leela is Rasa Leela. When Krishna disappeared from the Rasa dance and gopis began to sing Gopi Gita, Tavukatamritam tapta jivanam kaviviriditam kalma sapaham sravanamangalam srimaratatam puvigvinanti jai burida janaha All these songs, 19 songs. Krishna saw the song, heard the songs. He saw their love. He thought, what is... Uh, I am Rasaraj, king of love, connoisseur of love. But I'm seeing a kind of love that I, I don't know. I have no experience of. I have to taste that. This is the esoteric birth of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So deep inside of Krishna Lila, we find the Gaur Lila, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Lila. And that is giving, giving. So Krishna Lila is a private affair, but in its fullest expression, it goes everywhere. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he was singing that song in Rati Yatra, and he's in the mood of Radha, and he is remembering, she is remembering, she is in Dwarka, or on the way to Kurukshetra, meeting of Radha and Krishna in Kurukshetra. Radharani meets Krishna, but he's dressed like a prince. He invites her to come to Dwarka. No. She doesn't want to go there. He apologizes to her also. Oh, I've been away for a long time, but what can be done? This is the will of providence. By the arrangement of providence, people are brought together and people are separated. Krishna's a little embarrassed. He knows the extent of their love. He hasn't returned. So he tries to get out of it. He says, anyway, well, you know, God does these things. By the will of providence, then sometimes people are brought together, sometimes people are separated. Radharani says, yeah, that's fine, but you are God. So I'm not letting you off the hook. Hmm? <laughs> so Krishna bows to her. Hmm? And he tells, I'm purchased by you, by your love. You should know that. Shortly I'll be returning. That song is sung at that time. That moment in the Ratiyatra, Mahaprabhu was singing that song. And in the mood of Radharani, he's saying that I don't want you in this situation as a prince. I want you even in married life. I want you in the parakya, on the banks of the Jamuna, under the Kadamba tree. This is, this is everything for me. This is the highest ideal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So Rupa Goswami could understand that. He wrote a verse that explains it very explicitly. So you've taken us to a very high spot here. But that's okay. Sometimes we have to go there and know what is the ideal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. But not without talking about how to go there. Sometimes we can speak beautifully and poetically about the ideal, but when we speak about how to go there, everybody has something else to do. 
And that's how we got into this, talking about how we have to change. We have to move a little bit and be prepared to change. We have to be flexible if we want to become fixed. That is the idea. So, you've all taken Prashad? Yes, yes. If anyone, don't be shy. Yeah, please come a little closer and and just excuse myself for a minute. I'll be right back. Om Ajnanati Mirandasya Jnananjana Salakaya Chakshurum Nitam Jenatasmi Sri Gurave Namaha I'm going to speak a little bit from Bhagavad Gita. This edition is entitled Bhagavad Gita, It's Feeling and Philosophy. So, just to preface the talk, as some of you may be wondering why I'm not speaking from Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita. Um, I am, is the idea. Prabhupada once, uh, just to give a short story, was asked by Pradyumna Das, who was his Sanskrit editor at the time, that and Prabhupada was writing the Bhagavatam, the Bhagavatam commentary, and he was asked, Pradyumna asked, Prabhupada, after you finish the Bhagavatam, what book will you write? And Prabhupada thought for a moment, and he said, I think uh, Bhagavad Gita. And Pradyumna said, Prabhupada, you already did the Bhagavad Gita. And Prabhupada said, oh, that is one edition. There can be many. So he had some idea to do another edition. It is, after all, Krishna's words, and much can be drawn from that. And Prabhupada, like any any preacher of Krishna consciousness, <laughs> world goes on, had... He had a particular emphasis in his in his Gita, and uh, the emphasis was uh, twofold: to make devotees. And in order to make devotees, the second emphasis: to do away with mayavad, because you can't be a devotee if you have a mayavad idea in your head and heart. That was his main focus. Therefore, Krishna is two Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead. Uh, he wanted him from nothing, create adhikar, faith in Krishna and make devotees, and he was extremely successful. We are all examples of that, to one extent or another. And um, the emphasis of, of this Bhagavad Gita is a little different. It, it emphasizes what it, in, in some greater length, or greater depth, what it means to be a devotee. Hmm? And it emphasizes, the, the it seeks to develop the, uh, the theological idea that Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead and various ramifications of that. And the first thing that Prabhupada said to me, other than, uh, do you know the rules and regulations? And your name is Triparari Das, chant 16 rounds. The first thing he said to me was on a morning walk, uh, the first one I was privileged to go on. He used to go on a walk every morning. And... Um, it's a long story. I told the story in the preface to this book, but at the at the end of the walk, someone mentioned that Prabhupada Triparidas is, is here and he's distributing your books. So Prabhupada turned to me and I just sputtered <laughs> and tried to say something, and then he he interrupted me and quoted from Bhagavad Gita, the 18th chapter. Krishna mentions that. Whoever speaks the message of Bhagavad Gita to the devotees is most dear to me. Never will there be anyone more dear to me. So that was the first thing he said to me. And then he said, 
quoted another verse, famous verse from the Gita, Sarva Dharman Pratyajamamikam Sharanam Braja. And he told us, the small group that was with him at the time, that you should preach and write about Krishna consciousness. And someone replied, well, Prabhupada, you've written the books, so we'll just distribute them. And Prabhupada indicated that what wasn't enough, that he expected more from us. And that is, of course, the idea of the para. One, it means literally, after another, that it should be carried on in substance. So, this is my commentary on Bhagavad Gita. I'm going to just read one, one verse. Um, it's also, of course, written in contemporary language and in consideration of the social climate and times in which we live. And it's important if you want to influence the public to take interest in our ideology, then we have to present it in, in a way that it will appear relevant and up-to-date. That's the task, of course, of every preacher. Prabhupada would expect that of us. So I did this as an exercise initially, uh, uh, one for my own edification, because of all of Prabhupada's books, which I studied quite a bit, as I said earlier, my only service in Iskon was to read and chant. That's all I ever did, was I read the books and I chanted about them, and sometimes on the periphery, but distributed them. It was about them, we talked about them. So uh, I read... Prabhupada's books quite a bit. Uh, I probably read Chaitanya Charitamrita at least 10 times and Bhagavatam maybe 15 times. And um, the Gita I had read less, you know, maybe six or seven times, his Gita. So I thought I haven't done justice to the Bhagavad Gita. He said this to me many years ago. First thing he said to me, I should write something about Bhagavad Gita. So I started in a small way. I thought I'd just show how the verses connect together and the logic between them, so on and so forth. And... Um, well, it kind of took on a life of its of its own, and uh, I was doing it, as I say, for my own edification. And uh, it was very edifying and very purifying. The logic of Krishna in the Gita is so wonderful, from verse to verse, from chapter to chapter. After each chapter, I was just stunned, and I thought that the next chapter couldn't possibly be more, couldn't hold any more <laughs> wonder and charm than than. than and the one I had just finished, but I was happy to find that each chapter was fresh and unique. And and that's one of the features of this particular edition, that it seeks to demonstrate how all the chapters fit together, how the verses fit together, what is the underlying question in Arjun's mind that causes Krishna to give the answer, the next verse, and so forth. So I'm going to speak shortly, if I can, because we've spoken for quite some time already in the prelude to this, and um, I don't want to keep you too late. It's hard to sit on the floor like that, especially some of you uh, at your age. <laughs> but uh, what we're, uh, we're doing is we, uh, we follow the, the leelas of Krishna. We like to follow the pastimes of Krishna throughout the year, and every year the Janamastami comes. And so... Uh, we should we should read Bhagavatam, the tenth canto of Bhagavatam or Krishna book, and all year long, and come back to Janamastami. So we, 
this is a good practice because we're supposed to be devotees of Krishna, so we're supposed to know about Krishna and be attracted to Krishna. And so with the passing of the Janamastami, then we move on to other chapters of the Bhagavatam. But I'm speaking from the Gita and I'm just picking out a couple of verses that will take us into the Bhagavatam. Hmm. Last night we spoke from the seventh chapter where Krishna mentions his, his Yoga Maya and then we talked about the Yoga Maya who appeared along with Krishna. Uh, and as we discussed, as mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita, just the essence of the, of the Leela of Krishna. So we spoke about that at some length. And so what follows that? Following the killing of, or excuse me, following the appearance of Yogamaya, who chastised Kamsa, the only one who could speak out against Kamsa, then, um, well, we'll get to it. You know the story. Let me cite this verse from the Gita and see if you can tell where we're going. This way we should try to absorb ourselves. We cannot sit simply and meditate on it. Krishna, Radha and Krishna all day and night, but we should spend considerable time at least reading and discussing about it. That will purify our hearts. And by doing that, one day we'll find spontaneously my mind stops and my heart comes to life with all of these things. And what was in the book, in all the books, as much as everything is in every one of the books, and certainly in all of Prabhupada's books, everything is there. At the same time, all of that, it's all just an outline, really, to the book of life. And because why? Oh, we can only say so much. We can never say enough, I should say, about Krishna. If we enter into the land of faith where there's no doubt, and from there we come back to the plane of doubt to speak about it, then it would be taxing and perplexing how to say enough, what to say, how to talk about it. We'll try to draw some examples from this world as far as possible, that uh, speaking to the people relative to their conceptual orientation. Hmm. But it's a, it's a difficult task. Therefore, devotees are speaking about it over and over again and again and again in new times and new circumstances. Never enough. Ikshuternashabdat, the nature of such the absolute is we cannot say enough about it. Shankar says that sutra from Vedanta means we cannot say anything about it, but we take it another way. We cannot say enough about it, about Krishna. Hmm. 